We must not allow terrorists to sow discord and fear in our city. PC Keith Palmer was killed defending us, defending Parliament and defending parliamentary democracy. We are not afraid and our resolve will never waver in the face of terrorism. We are not afraid, we shall never waver, and today London went about its business. It's a country saying the terrorist attack cannot even make a dent in the democracy it despises. The Prime Minister. Yesterday, an act of terrorism tried to silence our democracy. But today we meet as normal, as generations have done before us and as future generations will continue to do, to deliver a simple message. We are not afraid, and our resolve will never waver in the face of terrorism. Well, with me today is Professor Michael Clark, formerly Director General of the Royal United Services Institute and BFBS Defence Analyst Christopher Lee. Hello to both of you. Michael Clark, here is the big question. Can modern terrorism attacks like this destroy democracy? No. Um, and I think everybody's made that point. Uh, you, you said the Prime Minister made it clear that this will not put a dent in our democracy. It'll, it, it'll, it'll dent our democracy about as much as it dented the palace railings yesterday. The car just bounced off them. Um, this happens. It's, it's extremely unfortunate and it hurts people, but it makes absolutely no difference. And those of us, you know, here in central London, everybody's going about their business as if it hadn't happened, in effect. Mm. And we're talking, Christopher Lee, of course, about somebody driving a vehicle into people, somebody stabbing a police officer to death in the centre of London, in Westminster. It's been a long time coming, this kind of attack. Scotland Yard has been expecting this for some time. Yes. Um, I remember just two years last February uh, talking about this at Scotland Yard um, and also talking about it to other people in the security business. Uh, and they said it is. There's an inevitability about this, but we're not. We're not saying look, we can't do anything about it. But here is the the most difficult bit of intelligence gathering, intelligence analysis, and also the cooperation with other intelligence agencies, including Metropolitan Police, with organisations, let's say in France, Brussels, or whatever. Uh, that's the hardest thing to do. But they point to the fact that they had a sense uh, based on that that it would come. And we saw, for example, Woolwich. Woolwich was unexpected in by a lot of people's standards. The killing and yet of Lee Rigby. Of Lee Rigby. Uh, and at the axing of Lee Rigby, don't forget, as well. Um, and that was a sense of inevitability. And so was so was this. And the head of uh, counter-terrorism at Scotland Yard has maintained this, not just privately, for the past 18 months. Professor Michael Clark, why is it that the police have been so open about saying <clears throat> an attack of this nature is inevitable? Because I think they could see that there was a wave building out there. Um, it was clear that the, the attacks that haven't taken place, that those that have been foiled in the UK have been quite, it's good that they've been foiled. And also there was some evidence that the terrorists were turning to Brussels and Paris and Berlin because they were, to be honest, they were easier targets. But it was always the case that the, it was going to happen here. And it's not at all surprising if this person is a, is a UK national, perhaps originating in Birmingham, we don't know much about this person yet, um, that it, but it almost inevitable that it would be you know one of our own community inspired by 
uh, Islamists, in this case apparently by uh, Islamic State, um, and that it was only a matter of time before something happened. And I, t to be honest, though this is a grim day uh, in London, and although yesterday was the day we had been waiting for, it could have been an awful lot worse. So, how did this happen? Theresa May told the Commons that security services knew this man. Let's talk to Professor <coughs> Anthony Glees from the University of Buckingham. Good to speak to you today. The Prime Minister said he was a peripheral figure. Does that mean the security services didn't have enough assets to track him then? Well, I think it does. Um, people may remember that the uh, bombers of 2005, um, the first lot, were also seen as peripheral by MI5. It wasn't that uh, MI5 had no trace of them. They hadn't uh, slipped under the radar. They were on the radar. And I understand exactly that, uh, you know, we have, what, three and a half thousand officers in the security service. Um, it's very complicated for them to decide where they should put the limited resources that they have. They divide people into essential targets and desirable targets. The 2005 London bombers were desirable. They should have been essential. The terrorist who killed and maimed yesterday was seen as desirable, should have been essential. Mm. IS is saying that this is an IS-inspired attack. They're calling this person their soldier. Um, what do you think the extent of any relationship between this person is with IS? Well, I think that you have to peel back the layers here. Uh, people who present as lone wolves are often acting alone, but are not necessarily spontaneous, demented fanatics. Usually there is a link between them and those who do the radicalizing, those who pull the strings. There was a case in Berlin before Christmas. It was the case in Nice last summer. People originally said to be lone wolves. All of a sudden they have a ring of contacts and somewhere there is a connection to the so-called Islamic State. I'm certain it will be the same here. It could be a distant link. It could be, uh, you know, downloading something off a magazine. But there are many elements that go to make a, a terrorist. You have to look at each and every one of them. And to keep us safe in our country, we have to arm ourselves both physically to have a policeman uh, at that very important gate in Parliament who has to confront a fanatic armed with a kitchen knife with absolutely nothing but his own bravery and gets killed, that is completely unacceptable. But also we have to arm ourselves with intelligence power and all the resources that our country has. And I'm afraid to say that what happened yesterday was a security and intelligence failure. Doesn't mean I think it's always going to be very, very easy to get these people. It will be very, very hard. And more resources will certainly help. Michael Clark, a security and intelligence failure. Well, every attack, <clears throat> or every successful attack, is a security and intelligence failure. That's the whole point. It's not every road accident is a road safety failure. Um, these are the things that you, you live with. And so the issue is always one of proportion. 
uh, and Anthony and I have debated this before, not so long ago today, and I know we take different views on this, but I don't think we're going to a different place on it. It's a question of what's the right balance of resources and of liberty versus security. But of course, um, it, we, we still don't know who this person is, so we don't know very much about this, this person. But it is not at all surprising that this person will probably turn out to be a petty criminal, to have been radicalised or be part of the radicalisation process, to be in the, in the weeds somewhere of the, of the, uh, of the jihadist movement in the UK and uh, not to have been connected to any of the big boys. Probably, that's what I'm guessing. But it still means that when somebody like that decides to just get hold of a hire car and go and do something with a hire car and, let's say, two kitchen knives, of course it's a failure, but you, you, know, you, you just can't prevent those sort of things. Well, during the last four years, MI5 reckons that about 13 major terrorist attacks have been prevented, but the next one could be just as unpredictable as this one. Uh, Christopher, arrests in Birmingham this morning, why? Well, we come back to what uh, what we were just hearing, and that is about the sort of status, if you like, of somebody. Um, I would tell you that the people I've spoken to, certainly have spoken to last year at, in the security service, no longer use this term, lone wolf. It's a newspaper term, they say. But they do it for one particular reason, is that somebody who d- does something like this, the chances are he's been talking to somebody. The chances are that he is in a particular society. The ta- chances are that he's got stuff on his, if you like, his iPhone, addresses on his iPhone, uh, and therefore th- there's somebody might know about it. Now, that's an aside. What has happened also about losing track of these people is this. At one time in the security service, but also in military intelligence, there was something, there was something it was called a rainbow form. And it's one of the few things that survived in counterintelligence. And this rainbow form has colours, and you know that's the sense of security that you're up against. And they have two things. One is possible with a character. It's quite possible that man is, is that we're very interested in. And then they slip into something else which is more probable. Um, it, it, it means that we definitely should be into, in, into him. When we get into the probable category, which is still on the state board, an electronic state board, the questions about him are much harder to answer. We've got to have more information to say, move somebody up. And if isn't that done in a certain time or something else comes in and creeps in and says, OK, we, we've got, now got somebody else in that slot, then that's when they disappear. That's when they become so-called peripheral. But they're never peripheral, peripheral in the sense that somewhere on the screen there is somebody. And I think, you know, first is, is absolutely right. This was a failure, and we have to recognise it's a failure, but it is, in a sense, inevitable failures at this level are exactly that, inevitable failures. Professor Anthony Glees, how, how do you think this, what do you think the effect of this will be? Do you think IS will be seeing this as a successful terrorist attack and do you think the result might be that someone else might be so, so-called inspired to do something else? I fear so. I fear so. I think that th- this attack appears to be modelled on what happened in Berlin, what happened in Nice. And what this person will have seen is that uh, the attacker yesterday got within 100 metres of the Prime Minister. Yes, outside a building, not inside a building. But if there had been explosives there, the, the conversation we'd be having now would be, would be very, very different. So uh, they will see, too, that, um, as Professor Clark repeatedly reminded us, uh, the Palace of Westminster is particularly secure. Westminster Bridge should be seen as particularly secure. Yet, in this particularly secure area, somebody could drive a 4 by 4 maiming and killing people. Uh, survivors have uh, catastrophic injuries, 
and then uh, kill a very brave policeman who we let be unarmed to confront him. Yes, I think that is the problem, and that is why our response has to be a very, very tough one now. A security policy is not a switch, it's a dial. And when times are difficult and times are hard, you've got to turn the volume up on the dial. So we've got to go back. Turn it up how? Turn it up how? By going back over all those people seen as uh, desirable but not essential and make sure we know where they are, we know what they're doing. Uh, We should consider why the so-called TPIMs, the terrorist investigation and prevention measures, the modern control orders, brought in by Theresa May when she was Home Secretary, when she said she was going to rejig the balance between security and liberty in favour of liberty, those were her words, Uh, why only about five or six people in the United Kingdom are subject to this kind of control. I would say that everybody who's come across MI5's radar in an Islamist sense should now be under some form of control. And let's show that we're tough. People often Where do you get say, the balance oh, right the between thing. that and personal freedom? Well, I think that, that that's, if I may say so, a very simple issue, that you can have security without liberty, like in communist East Germany or the Nazi Third Reich, but you cannot have liberty without security. So people want to take liberty off us and we need security to remain free. All right, Professor Anthony Glees, thank you for your time today. That's Professor Anthony Glees, Director of the Centre for Security and Intelligence Studies at Buckingham University. Well, a little earlier I spoke to Major General Julian Thompson, a former Royal Marine commander who served in Northern Ireland and now a visiting professor at King's College London. I asked him how he thought these attacks could be stopped. The answer is you can't stop it uh, completely. You can't guarantee to stop it. But the way you cut it down and eventually stop it, which will take a very long time, is through good intelligence and by not overreacting. By not overreacting, you mean what exactly? I mean uh, locking up everyone who doesn't look like you, if you see what I mean, or accusing a whole community of being behind it. What you do is you you say, we're all together. We realise that this person is a fanatic. He doesn't represent necessarily... Uh, you, the whole community, for example, Islam or whatever it is. And you also, at the same time, have to have good uh, intelligence in order to penetrate the organization, find out who is propagating this sort of uh, line and and, and suggest to them that they stop doing it and also put in place measures to stop it when you know that it's going to happen through good security. Of course, we had originally planned to talk to you today about the death of Martin McGuinness. His funeral is today. A man who this week we've seen much praised for his part in bringing peace to Northern Ireland, but still criticised for his role as an IRA commander. It was a negotiation that ended the troubles in Northern Ireland. How can we even get round the negotiating table, table with the kind of people that are behind these attacks? Well, the answer is we can't, because some of them are not amenable to that sort of uh, negotiating. They're not uh, reasonable people, as we understand it, the the complete fanatics. Uh, What we've got to do is to try and persuade people not to recruit them, try and persuade the community from which some of them are taken not to listen to the line they're being given. Um, And um, 
it, I, it is very difficult and it'll take a very long time. You've got to remember the Northern Ireland situation we've just been talking about went on for 30 years and that was considerably less dangerous than the one we're facing now. So I'm afraid we're faced with years and years and years of just ploughing on gently, not losing our tempers, not overreacting, just going on with our business. That is the way to defeat them. One of the differences that we face with uh, the um, Islamist um, problem is that some of them don't mind blowing themselves up in order to achieve their mission. The advice has been to military personnel not to wear uniform out and about who are within the M25. Is that the right kind of tack to take? Well, I think, I think it is, actually. Um, uh, we've been here before. We've been here before the IRA, where you were told, don't leave your berry on your rear window of your car because it'll give away the fact this is a, a service car. We've been here before. We, we know how to deal with this. Uh, the answer is don't get in a panic about it. Don't uh, get overheated about it. Just calmly get on with it. And, and occasionally you have to take what I think are quite sensible measures, which is don't make yourself a target by advertising the fact you're in the services. That was Major General Julian Thompson speaking to me a little earlier. Will IS have claimed responsibility for the attack through their own news agency, AMAC? On the line is Charlie Winter, Senior Research Fellow at King's College London. I'm also joined by Professor Michael Clark, former Director General of the Royal United Services Institute, and Christopher Lee, our Defence Analyst, is here in the studio. Charlie, um, the second biggest question is, did IS set this up or just, as they say, inspire it? Based on the nature of the claim, it coming through the Mark News Agency and the wording that was used, it looks like it was an attack that was simply inspired by the Islamic State or something. I mean, even you have to understand that there's a gradation, a spectrum of, of inspiration as well. But what it doesn't look like is something akin to Paris or Brussels or Istanbul, one where the Islamic State is trying to make its mark on it and take it on as its own centrally directed external operation. What kind of things are being said about it on social media? So there's the usual hubbub from Islamic State supporters celebrating it and, and making, uh, throwing together rather uh, posters and infographics celebrating the attack. The organization itself has, has been very restrained. It's just released a 20-word uh, Arabic language claim which has been translated into a variety of other languages, English among them, of course, um, stating that this man, whoever he was, was a quote-unquote soldier of the Islamic State who perpetrated his operation in response to calls to attack or target the civilians of, of uh, coalition states. And that's all they've said. So at the moment, they've not provided any information that points to any more substantial a link than one which is purely ideological. Uh, but of course that could change with time. In the past they've released videos in the wake of that which show the individual attackers actually pledging allegiance to Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi or something like that. So that may come but so far that's all there's been. Talk, talking from what we know then at the moment and, and this being a person who's on the periphery, IS being able to claim some kind of success through that in their eyes, does that mean that going forward um, radicalisation in itself is no longer as important because they can claim any kind of act of terror as their own? Well, there is a, a perception that the Islamic State claims everything uh, and that it would claim responsibility for a hurricane if it, if it could, but that's not actually the case. 
it, it is quite careful about what it claims, and I would imagine that there is... So how does it decide what it claims and what it doesn't, then, if, if we can accept that sometimes perhaps they aren't fully radicalising people who carry out things in their name? Uh, so I think they look at the evidence that we're all looking at, but also they wait to see if there is uh, a personal collection, connection between an individual attacker and uh, someone in the Islamic State itself. So in the past, that's what we've seen. Uh, documents and, and, and uh, assurances have been sent from outside the Islamic State into the Islamic State, uh, essentially asserting that uh, an individual attacker was um, operating on their behalf rather than any other organization. And you have attack in, uh, or the attempted attack in Paris um, earlier on this week, or was it last week, uh, which involved a, a guy trying to grab a gun from a policeman um, and ultimately getting shot in, in the, the meantime. But he also, earlier that day, killed or uh, at least stabbed uh, a policeman in Paris, and the Islamic State didn't claim responsibility for that. It wasn't because his operation was unsuccessful. Uh, I think it was broadly a success because he managed to attack a policeman and then go to, to Paris airport and get headline news all over the world. But what they didn't do is claim it because evidently there wasn't that level of, uh, of, of evidence there, that certainty that they need on their part to make a claim a worthy thing to do. Professor Michael Clark, um, accepting that a lot of the people that commit these kind of crimes are disenfranchised people, as was the case in Woolwich, how can this be prevented from happening? How can they be prevented from even wanting to carry out these kind of crimes in the first place? How can they be identified? Well, there's different things. I mean, one is identifying people, um, but actually trying to prevent radicalisation is the hardest part of the the whole strategy. The contest strategy, the counter-terrorism strategy, has got these four strands, and the, the prevent strand is the one that tries to uh, concentrate on counter-radicalisation. It's very difficult because the the critics of the of the program say, look, it just it just makes a community feel victimised, and others say, well, look at it more carefully. It's actually it's doing not a bad job, and of course that could always be made better. And this this government um, certainly said that they wanted to renew the prevent strategy, and they've been working on a new version of the whole contest thing but it's the hardest part and I think going back to what Julian Thompson said uh, in the early part of the program it, it's it, you, it'll take a long time and my own feeling is that it's got to be deglamorized at the moment being radical is quite glamorous to uh, disaffected young people and some older people and they're not always disaffected because they're poor or because they're badly educated they're disaffected for all sorts of reasons Ch and somehow if you can deglamorize it then I think you can begin to get into the to the problem a little, a little bit more very very briefly Charlie Winter on that note about deglamorizing the the, the potential uh, attractions of this kind of route how good are we in the UK at doing that at the moment well I think one of the key things to think about is the, the the media reaction to an attack like this. So yes, there is the, uh, the, the glamour attached to being a radical, but much more important, I think, is the impact that a given attack can, can have. And I think it's very important, very important, that the government went back to work today as normal, that Westminster Bridge has just been reopened, that there's been a return to, to normality as quickly as possible. I think under that, that in and of itself, just by its very being, undermines the act of terrorism uh, in, in not in one fell swoop. Of course, the impact is still there and people have been killed. But what it does do is, is give less to the Islamic State. Right. It allows them less symbolic uh, 
less symbolic a success. And that also ends up disincentivizing uh, other individuals to, to carry out attacks like it. But of course, oh. if it's notoriety that they want, then it's notoriety that they got. All right, Charlie Winter, Senior Research Fellow at King's College London. Thank you for your time today. Well, let's now talk to Michael Pregent, Adjunct Fellow at the Hudson Institute in Washington, D.C. Good to speak to you today. Where does what happened in London fit into the international terrorism picture? Well, thanks for having me. Um, these types of attacks, uh, like your previous guests have stated, are unfortunately the new norm. It's too easy to do. It, it's too easy to take a pickup truck or, or take a, a very small uh, sports utility vehicle, ram it into a crowd, um, kill individuals, and then take a knife and stab somebody, that, that's going to happen. And, and back to your previous guest comments about uh, ISIS taking credit for it, regardless of whether or not ISIS takes care of it or, or takes credit for it, as soon as it happens, the first question on everyone's mind, is this an ISIS attack? So they still benefit from, from um, being credited with the capability to carry out these attacks. 68 foreign ministers are meeting in Washington at the moment to see how they can counter IS, but only half a dozen or so are actively doing it. What progress can be made? Well, the strategy seems to be focused on taking territory away from ISIS. ISIS doesn't have to control Raqqa, Deir Azur, or Mosul um, to be able to, to have lone wolves follow some of their blueprints for carrying out a terrorist attack, as we saw in London, that didn't require ISIS to, to hold terrain. So I think it, it needs to be a multifaceted uh, approach to defeating ISIS, and it's too centered right now on taking away terrain. And my fear is that if when Mosul falls, um, we're going to claim victory in Iraq. We're going to say ISIS has been defeated in Iraq, and. Uh, ISIS will simply move to an al-Qaeda-like model where they continue to conduct high-profile attacks. See, see the differences, and like your previous guest said, press is so important to these terrorist organizations. They have to kill upwards of 50 people in Iraq to get in the newspaper. They have to kill more than, more than 50, maybe more, more than 100 to get in a newspaper in Syria. All they have to do is kill one person, injure one person in the West, and they get 24-7 news media. So we're making it easier for them to continue to push their brand that they are this virtual caliphate and they're able to inspire attacks. We, we, need, to, we need to get used and we need to, we need to get used to this in, in a way that like, the, like um, the British Prime Minister said, the, the best thing you could do today is go back to work and, and, and commit a thousand acts of, you know, of normal activity and that, that diffuses this terrorist attack. But what we need to do is we need to raise that, that threshold of what, a, what an attack is and what gets covered. And unfortunately, we're not gonna do that. We're gonna continue to pay attention to this. Um, mm. Again, ISIS is operating in 30 countries <laughs> across the world. They haven't necessarily raised a black flag, but they're able to plan, mm. uh, they're able to morph. Al-Qaeda is resurgent in Afghanistan, in, in, the, in the Levant, in Africa. So we, okay. this, is made, this may be the new norm. All right, Michael Pregent, good to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time today. Um, so what next? Where do we go from here? Um, Christopher Lee, it's depressing, isn't it? Let's put this in absolute straight. For, let's call it the United Kingdom, the only success here was its response. No other success at all. For the guy that did it, absolute success 
he did what he set out to do. We don't know that, do we? Uh, he set out what he appears... I mean, he drove along Westminster Bridge and then tried to attack somebody. So he got that far in what he did. Our only, if you mm. like, in the West. The other thing is that... It... Professor Michael Clark, your thoughts? Yes, the, this uh, th process does take a slightly depressing uh, predi predictability. I mean, yesterday, I mean, politicians were almost fighting for the microphones outside uh, Westminster when they were released to uh, to, uh, to say thoughts and prayers. Everyone's in our thoughts and in our prayers, and it's it's politically necessary. Every politician has to begin every answer thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers. And now the uh, the, the dialogue now turns to intelligence failures. Um, we knew that that would be the next phrase after thoughts and prayers. There is a way in which we we go along the same track. In this case, and I think, um, I think, as Michael Pregent said, um, in a way, the way we cover it is actually giving the terrorist uh, a certain amount of success, whatever the technical level of what he or she does. It's interesting that Michael Pregent said that um, IS doesn't have to raise the black flag to claim a, a victory in their eyes, but they've managed to get us to lower our flags today, Christopher. Yeah, um, I was talking to a guy uh, across from MI5 earlier this morning at a coffee store, and he said, you know. IS don't even know who did this. We're pretty certain of that. They will. But it's interesting, you look in their communique, he's not mentioned by name, and normally he would be. Well, that is all we have time for today. My thanks to all of our guests. Tell us what you think. You can tweet us at BFBS SITREP and never miss an episode. You can subscribe to this show as a podcast. Just search online for BFBS SITREP. So from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening and bye-bye for now. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.